in in the workshop you were told to look around the room for the f- person you find the most repulsive and then go stand next to them and put your hand on the on their shoulder and then you've walked over to her and she's walked over to you and you've both found each other the most repulsive person in the room it's a great exercise the judgment was that it was just like me judging someone that might spend too long in front of the mirror and that's totally my judgment i don't know if she does or doesn't so I, mm. i'm not putting her under a bus or i hope i'm not mm. you know um but what it triggered in me and you know i remember my father saying to me i was looking at myself in the mirror i think it might have been then or or but i remember him saying geez you love yourself don't you you know it was that kind of toxic masculinity that i grew up with you know as a teenager and that kind of crushed me you know like that probably installed that judgment in me you know from that moment on Pete Isaiah is a trauma therapist and integration coach supporting individuals and couples to become their most empowered and courageous authentic selves This podcast features inspiring conversations with graduates of Pete's shadow work courses and deep dives with experts in the arena of alternative health and current affairs here, we're not victims, we're volunteers. Are you in? David Granger, <laughs> welcome. And thanks, yeah, thanks for uh, agreeing to come and have a, a chat with me. You have shown an interest in shadow work because when I did my first workshop about 12 months ago in Mullum, we did a two-day live workshop, you attended that. And that was a pretty special moment. I've got some nice video um, of working with you on aspects of your shadow. And and then you, you volunteered for a second go at shadow work by jumping on my online course. And so, and yeah, at some point we'll, I'd like to hear from you about what that experience and that journey has been like for, from you. What, what was it that got you interested in shadow work? Um, where did you first hear about it? Um, and then what you were what you thought it was compared to what it actually was if there was a difference in that or yeah how your experience has been maybe we could start by if you want to just give a little bit of background about you because we've been friends for a while and but I don't know a lot of your history I know that you lived in I lived in LA for about 10 years and I know you lived in New York for a while and that a lot of your your work took you overseas and so maybe just for our audience could you Share a little bit about, you know, who you are and what you've been up to with your life and where you're at. And sure. Yeah. Sure. I, um, um, I trained, I grew up in Sydney, grew up on the northern beaches, surfy kind of life. And, um, <clears throat> and I was surfing too much and needed to get a job. And um, there was a local job as a hairdresser in the, um, in the newspaper. And... Um, I wanted to be an actor at that time and um, so I just thought, oh, this is a ticket out of school. Let's give it a crack, you know. And um, I went, there wasn't work experience then. There was just sort of, okay, we'll give you two weeks trial. So I left school for two weeks and never went back, you know. Well, That was in year 11. <laughs> My girlfriend at the time was working at Dolly magazine, a fashion magazine as a fashion assistant and and I started doing hair for photographs you know started doing hair and makeup and and a makeup artist showed me makeup once so I'd sort of self-taught with makeup and just sort of started to build a portfolio kind of thing you know and um, I went on a brief trip at 21 to London to do a Vidal Sassoon course and then decided quickly when I was over there to um come back, make some money and move overseas. So, so I came back to Sydney, did a bit more work, got some photographs together and went off with, you know, $400 or something in my pocket and just <laughs> didn't come home for four years at that time. You know? <laughs> $100 a year. <laughs> As you do, you know, like and London was pretty happening back then. So mm. it was a, I, I was really lucky, you know, I went – chased a few agencies and nobody wanted to take me on except for this one lady who had 10 people and she said as soon as someone leaves I'll take you on and she gave me a list of photographers to go and 
do my own thing and I went and called those photographers and lucky for me they were the up-and-coming photographers that are now some of the most famous in the world, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I got in on a good gig, mm. you know. and Good fortune. Yeah, and learnt pretty quickly and, you know, I think the English really liked the Australians working over there. Mm. And that was in high fashion. It was in the fashion industry, so it was um, it was pretty heady times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Then came back to Sydney after four years, and um, yeah, I kind of imploded at that point. I sort of um, had a so-called nervous breakdown, suicide attempts, the whole thing mm. just sort of all crashed in on me, mm. and um, then. Got myself through help, you know, through um, mental health workers and stuff and medication and things. I got back on my feet again and then went back overseas again and, and did that for many years. I ended up staying nine years out of the country and um, three years in New York, four years in Paris and, and two years in London. Yeah, wow. That's a, quite a story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <coughs> um, the, the the nervous breakdown, the mental breakdown that you, you mentioned, um, was there a particular thing that precipitated that? Was it was because you had that when you came back to Sydney? You said, mm, mm. and what do you think that was about? Was it was it re- having to relocate, or was it? I think it was everything all at once. You know, like it was. I kind of I was smoking a lot of pot and a yep. lot of hash in Europe. Okay, could have been attributed to that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I kind of, I sort of, I, I went from being a, you know, kind of star makeup artist, hairdresser kind of thing to living with my parents. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that'll do it. <laughs> so it was a, the crash, the mighty fall. Yeah. From living like the high life, you know, Amsterdam, Paris, London, and moving in those circles. I imagine, you know, there would have been things about that that were very kind of glamorous or. Um, yeah. And uh, maybe feeling good about yourself and ha- having confidence and yeah. a lot of connection, a lot of social, probably high life, high living. Was there drugs involved? Like, was oh, completely. Was yeah. there a party scene that you were yeah. part of? I mean, ecstasy was just just kicking off in London, you know, and ecstasy was crossed with heroin at that point. You know, the first batch of ecstasy was all cut with smack. Okay. So, yeah, there was a lot of that going on, you know. Most weekends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so so it's, it's, you had quite the life. Yeah, yeah. Was it? Do, do you look back on those times with a lot of um, satisfaction and like nostalgia and like good memories of like they were, they was the, no, the high times for you or? Kind of. Like yeah. the, I don't sort of put them up here at all. I, it's more like I just kind of, you know that saying, roll with the punches. I was sort of rolling with the likes, if you like, you know, <laughs> like rather than the punches. It was just like, you know, you, I was in my late 20s. You're kind of invincible. You're just mm. sort of fucking, you know, just do the next right thing, you know, and just keep going. And, yeah, I'll do that and I'll do that. And, yeah, you know, yeah. it's okay. And being Australian, um, people thought that Australia, particularly the French, they think that Australians – are exotic, you know, like they're like from the other end of the planet, you know, and they okay. talk funny uh, yep. and they're keen to do anything. <laughs> you know? So I had the life of Riley, really, you know, apart from bad things happening, like like getting kicked out of England, mm. the rest of it was like, you know, fun, good fun, like hedonistic fun, but not um, not not dangerous fun. Yeah, I lived, I lived the 90s in Los Angeles. I, I lived there for about 10 years and... Uh, the Americans are quite fond of the Australians as well. It's it's not just the accent. I think they like our attitude, or they just mm. see us as different. Yeah. And so I I definitely noticed I had way more opportunities, and uh, I I just felt more part of something than than I did back home in Australia. Yeah. And um, interestingly, we, we both uh, <laughs> both you and I uh, took up careers that were ma- mainly female dominated. Yeah, you being yeah. a hairdresser and and makeup artist, and me being a nurse. Yeah. And um. And then we're, we're roughly the same age and we both look like we spent the 90s overseas partying and having a good time. And, <laughs> and uh, you, you know, did you ever marry or have children? No. Yeah, no, same, same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And so in some ways we're kind of, you know, kindred souls in, yeah. in, in our life path. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I've, I've felt very low before in the past, um, quite depressed. Um, I've never had a plan or thought about a way to die, but I've had that thought that, oh, I just don't want to go on anymore. Life's too hard. That's about as close as I've come to suicidal thoughts. And uh, it was after I had a big project that I was really heavily involved in and engaged in and then the project fell over and I'd put so much of my time and effort into it and I, I was just demoralised and you know, all the wind had been taken out of my sails and I felt qu- quite depressed. And um, interestingly, what the thing that got me out of that was because um, the project was in northern Queensland, I went back to WA where I'm from and I saw my good friend over there, Chris, and... And he could see that I was really depressed and it's not like me to be depressed. And he said, oh, I've got just the thing for you. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he, <laughs> he, he went to his room and he came out and it was a pamphlet, um, a government pamphlet put out by B- Beyond Blue, which oh, I yeah. think is a government initiative for mental yeah, health. Yeah. And it was a picture of a very sad guy on the front of the pamphlet. And the, the title said, Are You Taking Your Depression Seriously Enough? And when I looked at that, I just started laughing because <laughs> he was implying that I wasn't taking my depression seriously enough. And, and so that got me out of, out of my depression, just yeah, having right. a, a good laugh with a good mate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you think you're depressed because you're taking it too serious and I get it. You know, your project fell over, you're a bit down about it, but, you know, pick up. Yeah. And so um, that was my brush with depression. But I, I imagine for you it was a bit more than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been prone to it most of my life. Um, I remember even back at like 12 years old, you know, my brothers were pretty violent to each other. I'm the youngest of three brothers and they'd come home from school and try to kill each other, you know, with fist fights and stuff and I'd be like, oh, fuck, go for a walk along the beach or something, you know. And even at 12 years old, I'd, every Sunday I used to, uh, without fail, go for a two-hour walk along the beach by myself just to get my thoughts in order for the week. With hindsight, looking back on that, that's quite intense thinking for a 12-year-old. It is. <laughs> you know, so I have the capacity for that kind of thought and that kind of mm. introspection. Mm. And um, and I think what happened around that nervous breakdown thing, it was like basically I started to get paranoid and hadn't slept for two weeks pretty much. And, and it was when the earthquake happened in Newcastle and I saw it on the television and I thought in my delusion that I'd created the earthquake. Mm. So that kind of, that was the tipping point. Yeah. Where, uh, with suicidal thoughts, it's just like the world's better off without me. You know, everybody would rather I wasn't here, which is totally not true, but that's where the mind goes, you know, or my mind went at that time, which is quite frightening. Yeah. You know. That uh, I know from, you know, my nursing background and, you know, um, working in drugs and rehabs and things like that, um, sleep deprivation it definitely can precipitate um, psychotic or psych, you know, pre-psychotic kind of episodes where you can become quite delusional and mm. hallucinate and have those kind of thoughts. And so, yeah, it, it might have been, you know, a sleep deprivation mental breakdown oh i I 100 percent think it was yeah it doesn't take much more than missing out on a few nights sleep people don't people don't realize that no they think it's a drug-induced psychosis well sure if you if you're using uppers like speed and it's keeping you up at night you're not sleeping yeah it's not the drug that's causing the psychosis it's the lack of sleep yeah yeah and then then your mind goes into a loop that just gets tighter and tighter and tighter yeah how old were you when you had the breakdown do you think 27 you know. Okay, that's a little early for a Saturn return, but not, not, <laughs> not that early. It's right around the Saturn return, 28, 29 usually. Yeah. And uh, that's an astrological term. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a dark night of the soul, spiritual awakening thing. And, and I think I talk about that concept of the hero's journey in, in mm. the shadow course. And, mm. um, yeah, sometimes those moments where there's a big breakdown is really an opportunity for a breakthrough. Yeah. And then something in you w- wakes up. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And it was interesting because I was, through the mental health unit, I was assigned a psychiatrist who mm. had me on these meds that were really heavy, you know, mm. Mellorol was a drug. And, um, and, and in the end, the, the person that helped me the most was a homeopath because he asked the right questions. Do you remember what those questions were? He was more concerned with my inner 
being. Than your diagnosis. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And he actually prescribed me cannabis. <laughs> right. <laughs> and did you get that prescription filled? I did. <laughs> and did it help? Yeah, it did, homeopathically, you know, like, yeah. and gold. Gold was the other one who prescribed Gold, me. like yeah. colloidal gold. Forum, yeah. 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 And that that's really supported your mental state and mm. helped you recover from mm. that. Yeah. I remember... I remember putting the Malheur in the bin. It's a good place for it. <laughs> for those who don't know Malheur, it's a, it's an atypical antipsychotic. It's um, similar to things like um, Largactyl or uh, what's the other one? Um, Benzos. Haloperidol. So uh, they're, they're, they're major tranquilizers and antipsychotic drugs and they've got like a whole page of side effects. And it's, yeah, when you're on those, you're, you're very heavily tranquilized and sedated and it's pretty hard to function and there, there are you know it's hard to say valid uses for them but sometimes people need those to break their psychosis and i've seen them used that way but then they wouldn't be fun to be on long term and most people with mental illnesses who are prescribed those medications jump off them just because of all the side effects mm. i'm not suggesting people should jump off their Med, their psychiatric meds i'm not saying that at all but i just know from experience that they're so unpleasant to be on that the people would rather deal with the mental illness than the side effects of the of the medication yeah. Yeah. so yeah so you put that in the bin you took up the cannabis and the gold and um yeah and i went back over to seas so this was pre-new york so you know i, I went back over to seas and had one little episode over there came back and then went over again you know like and never never really affected me ever again since you know right (laughs) and so more traveling and more more yeah yeah more work more traveling and um yeah yeah it was it's then i after new york i came back to sydney and i i feel that i suffered from that tall poppy syndrome in sydney you know like that kind of I really kicked goals overseas and worked with some really big wigs, and um, yeah, and people sort of shied away from me from when I was here, and I was um, mm. I was a bit of an underground kind of dude in Sydney, you know, like I hung out with the underground people, and and was a bit more of a, I didn't play the game that the fashion industry expected. Mm. <laughs> yeah, an outsider, yeah. <laughs> an outlier. Yeah, and um, and through that, I found heroin. <laughs> or it found you. <laughs> uh, what was that journey like? Ah, oh, that was that was pretty harsh, you know. Was it before we get to the harsh bit? Was it good in the beginning? Oh yeah, totally euphoric. You know, yeah. I was with my partner at the time, and and mm. both of us. She liked she liked myself. All of our heroes, you know, musicians, Miles Davis, Gil Scott Heron, you know, like old kind of. <clears throat> People we looked up to were all heroin addicts at some point in their lives. And it was just like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) We need that for our creativity. (laughs) Right. Does it it stunt creativity or does it enhance creativity in in your experience? I think inevitably it stunts everything, you know. Mm. Um, But I don't know that it enhances creativity. It enhances euphoria. Yeah, (laughs) it does. And it's uh, I used to call it my lover you know like mm. it basically takes the place of your lover it's mm. and my my um term for it in the end was my emotional blanket that's what heroin was mm. you know, it's well it's a it's a um it's the ultimate painkiller in that it takes away all pain not just physical but emotional mental spiritual mm. or however else you can define pain so you end up in a totally pain-free and blissful euphoric state mm. and it's very easy to enjoy that that state and to want more of that it's not sustainable long term because for some reason the way we made up is that we need pain and discomfort to grow yeah and so i think it does stunt growth yeah yeah completely and and one of the other attractive things about heroin is it doesn't affect your mind at all like you could be having a really in-depth conversation with somebody and then go on the nod and then come back up and still carry on the conversation where you left right <laughs> so if that happens today I'll, I'll know what you've been up to <laughs> there was a um, i remember he- hearing about a a surgeon in england so in england they actually have in australia we don't have heroin heroin is diamorphine 
So in Australia, in the US, we have morphine, but we don't have diamorphine. And in England, I don't know if they still do, but they used to have diamorphine as a pharmaceutical grade uh, analgesic that they used in hospitals. And there was a surgeon who was one of the top surgeons in his field. And when he, he retired, he admitted that for every day for 40 years, he used diamorphine. But, you know, out of a vial, out of a sterile vial, he would shoot up and he would go in and do amazing surgery. And it said it just it calmed his nerves and so that he could focus on it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting how when you, when you hear an example like that, because we tend to get a bit skewed in our, in our thinking around a drug and what it is and what it isn't. And it, like the drug itself, I mean, morphine is like, it's, it's an angel. Like it mm. takes, takes away pain. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of people use it at death, you know, to take away the pain of, you know, the, the suffering of dying. And in that way, it's like this beautiful angel that comes to take our pain away as, as we're leaving our body. And so, but then, you know, it's, it's the humans and, and what we bring to it <laughs> that tarnishes the, the name. But, but diamorphine coming from the beautiful poppy flower itself is just like an angel from nature mm. to take away our pain. Um, unfortunately, I think that in the short term, that's good. But as a long-term strategy, it doesn't work because I've always found that it's through my pain and my discomfort that I do grow and that yeah. I do get to to have victories and triumphs over adversity, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, well, it's like that. Um, I heard recently that um, biosphere in America, remember that, that whole biosphere thing where they had a whole um, forest and things, they had a whole you know group of people that lived there for I years. I do, that's yeah, right, experiment. Yeah, so the trees died, and the trees died because there was no wind. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. Trees, trees and plants need wind to... The stress. Yeah. Right. Uh, grow, you know, like... Yeah. <laughs> so did you grow much during your heroin days? Um, yeah, I did. I think it was the medicine I needed, you know, mm. like uh, out of that whole nervous breakdown thing and that kind of thing that was going on. And the, I guess the heroin was my dark night of the soul. That mm. was my real one, not the nervous breakdown. It was more the heroin was kind of the medicine for a while there. And then through the medicine, I got worse, you know. Because I worked th the whole time through my addiction. Mm. I was only badly addicted for like two years. So it wasn't a big chunk of my life. But I worked that whole time. So it was like, you know, I got this reputation for being a guy that <laughs> might have been asleep at some times. <laughs> he could sleep on the job. <laughs> so and how long did you dance with that for? How long? There was two that? years. Yeah, that's not too, that, that long, is it really? No, no, but it's long enough to sort of. Like I didn't burn my career, but mm. I certainly set it alight. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people still talk about it. Okay, oh, so it was a public um, of uh, sorts within yeah. the industry. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, I certainly got known as that guy. Right, sure. Um, any regrets, guilt, shame, embarrassment, anything around like that that you hold on to around those times, or do you Not just at all. that's Not awesome? At all. I, I really like to hear that. Yeah, I just started working again. My reputation wasn't too soiled and um, I, was, I was able to survive like that. And then I decided that I needed something, some other creative pursuit to, to fulfil me in Australia because I wasn't getting that what I was getting in Europe yep. and America. So I went to art school as a mature age student and I did a Bachelor of Arts for three years at the National Art School. Is it like fine art? Or yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I learned how to be a painter and mm. you, know, you, you do all of it. You do sculpture, painting. Yeah. But I, I um, focused on painting in the end. Yeah, and that's what you're doing now. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Never married, no kids. Um, would you share a little bit about that? Was that a deliberate choice or was that circumstance or how would you – because I'm, I'm never married, no kids, and I've got my own story around why, but I'm curious what your story is around that. My story around that is kids were never spoken about with the women I was at at that time in my life and I guess I've just lived a bit of a in-the-moment life, you know, hedonistic at times and other times spiritual and other times whatnot. And by the time kids came into the picture, as in old enough to have them and, you know... Um, it's not that I was too old, but the women had already had kids or something. It just didn't 
show up in my life and I've never had that urge to procreate. Yeah. Never had it. Mm. And I can't explain that. Yeah. You know? I don't know what it is. I mean, now that I'm 60, it's like I have moments where I go, it's not that I wish kids were around, but I really see the differences between me not having kids and 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 other people that do have kids and I'm really a, a minority in society now, which I'm realising because it's like it, at least if I was gay, I'd have a community to latch onto, you know. But now, right. where's the community for sixty-year-old guys without families? Yeah, there's yeah. no Singles Day like Father's Day. Right, is there, that's you know? a good point. <laughs> Fatherless Day. <laughs> you know, like mm. I, I really feel it in Father's Day. Like Father's Day is just gone and yeah. it really kind of hit me in the heart the last couple of years. Mm. The year before, I was just like. Uh, wishing happy Father's Day to all my male friends who've got kids. And then this year I went into a bit of a funk with it, you know. Mm. Just just not not wishing I'd had kids, but just going, wow, I'm a, I'm a minority. Yeah. Here, you know? For me, I'm, I'm 62. I, you know, I watched my parents do family and raise children. I wasn't very impressed with their model of marriage and raising a family. Um, in fact, I was horrified by it, and so yeah. that definitely tainted my choice. And I made a conscious choice that I knew that, based on my experience, if I had gone ahead and got married and had kids as a young man, say twenties, thirties, or maybe even forties, I think I would have made a lot of mistakes because I didn't really know myself well enough because I was still trying to heal the traumas of my own childhood. And so um, that was a co- a conscious decision, and. Um, Interestingly, now I'm I'm in a, in a relationship that would support having children, and me and my partner are currently having that conversation. So yeah, there is a possibility for me that I may still become a father. And I've never, like you, I've never had a strong desire or felt the need to procreate. I've never been a strong yes, and I've never been a, a strong no either. It just never, it just never. Uh, I was never in the situation that a family was a good, the obvious next step. Mm. Whereas now it seems to be because my partner is wanting to have children. She's younger than me and still childbearing age, and so so we we're looking at that option. And and but, but you know, having said that, ha- had this not happened, I I would have been okay. Mm. Yeah, I would have been well. That's not what this life was going to be about for me. And now it is a possibility, and I'm open to it. And it's funny. It's a, it's like um. I get the feeling from because I recently had a small gathering for my 60th, and a really close friend of mine turned up, and he's and I was talking about those father issues around that I have, mm. and um, and he said, "Yeah, I felt that at your party because all the people there didn't have kids, and it was just like it's almost like the people that do have kids look at us like you're still kids, you've never grown up, you know, mm. like and." As an artist, I think that's a boon, you know? Like, that's like, I don't want to fucking grow up. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, to a point I do, but, like, I don't... As an artist, I need to keep play in my life. I need to keep joy in my life. I need to keep experimenting in my life, you know? I don't really need to go to that next level of nurturing a new life, you know? Like, I'm not saying it's out of the question, but it's just, like, there's something wonderful about not growing up. Yeah, and, you know, I think for some people maybe if they do have children, it may force them to grow up and, and yeah. shift their priorities. And I've certainly heard people talk about that. But, you know, just because you can produce a child is no guarantee that you are going to grow up. And, in fact, there's plenty of evidence. You know, you and I both know people who have had children and haven't managed to grow up, mm. you know, <laughs> or at least show up as their as their mature self. And so it's, it's no guarantee that children provide that. Yeah, I, I'm really open on this conversation and I know that some people think that, you know, either you're missing out or you're unfulfilled or you're incomplete as a human unless you do procreate. And I don't know, I would just debate and challenge that because I think that's it's a, it's a bit of a skewed view of things. So that's a brief introduction to <laughs> David, <laughs> isn't it? Um, I'm glad we, we took our time with it. Um, I'd like to now maybe talk about... Um, yeah, the sh- the shadow work stuff, and so, um, would you maybe start with like 
when did you get interested in shadow work and what, what attracted you to wanting to do some shadow work and then go into what your experience has been like over the last 12 months? I think what initially drew me to shadow work was um, through reading Jung mm-hmm. and and also I've always, in the last 10 years, I've been participating in workshops of different kinds all through, through my life and... Um, you know, relationship workshops and self-development workshops and stuff. And the shadow, to me, <clears throat> is the unconscious, you know, good and bad. <laughs> and it, it contains everything. <laughs> and it sometimes why uh, I judge somebody, that will be my shadow, you know, mm. saying, have a look at yourself. And, um, and, and then I'd met you uh, through mutual friend and we clicked and and became mates and then you s- you showed interest in shadow work and you said, said you're having this workshop and I was one of the first ones to put my hand up I think cause you were because <laughs> it was good and and that uh, I'll talk about that um that two-day workshop first because it was a really interesting thing that has only recently come to light and that was two years ago i think it was only 12 months ago 12 months ago sorry yeah so it's taken that long to sort of um surface in my life the sort of healing that's come from that but um i had there was one exercise in that weekend where we had to walk around and see who who we react to like who who brings out the shadow in you? Like, who are you judging kind of thing? I think the, the actual thing I said was, look around the room for the person you're most repulsed by. <laughs> I think that was my actual words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And funnily enough, I don't think this had happened before, but the girl I picked, she picked me. So we had a double whammy. Wow. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I remember that work you did with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And funnily enough, that work, like, that woman, she she kind of embodied the modern kind of woman who's, you know, kind of looks like a model, kind of, you know, is into self-appearance quite a lot, you know, and, um, and, and yeah, I, I bristled. I bristled when I saw her because it was kind of like, everything I don't like about, you know, about kind of women presenting themselves, you know. It just kind of – and what I've learned in that 12 months and, – and that was my shadow. And what I've learned in that 12 months is that that's a shadow from my hair and makeup work. You know, I'd spent so long kind of pampering women, you know, to make them look their best selves and – that I, I had in my mind this ideal woman, how they should look, you know, and it, and it really made me judge anyone that didn't fit into that kind of category. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, and, um, and the reason I bring this up is because I've since sort of had romantic um, li- liaisons with women that are of different shapes and different sizes and different kind of ideals. And they've been wonderful, you know, like they've been really good experiences and it's just kind of smashed that kind of whole ideal I had about women, you know, <laughs> which, and it's funny to think about it because I didn't think about it at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what shadow is. It's something that you don't think, that you can't think about. You can't see it until no. you go looking for it. But now since, so over the last 12 months you have been thinking about it and looking at the hidden elements of that. It's a, it's a perfect Jungian conversation because Jung talks about the persona, mm. you know, the social mask that mm. we wear in public to present a good image of ourselves. Mm. Well, what's hair and makeup if it's not creating a perfect persona? Exactly. So yeah. you're in the business of creating this mask, this public persona for these women so that they could go out and be their best self, at yeah. least in appearance-wise, and then behind that mask lies you know the shadow yeah and and it's 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 just it's, 
It just fits in, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 it, totally. And it, was, it, it only came to me like a couple of weeks ago when mm. I sort of started to think about this podcast and, I thought, and got into this relationship and stuff and I went, oh, that's what's happening. Fucking mm. hell, you know, because I kind of fell head over heels in love with this woman in, in some ways, you know, like it was kind of like a real kind of pull into, into um, a different way of life for me, which was really kind of interesting. And yeah. I didn't actually think about the shadow work until this, this podcast sort of came up and I went, oh, oh, and then I joined the dots and it was like the penny dropped. Mm. <laughs> so you, you've met this woman and she's not, she's not like a, a woman that you'd be doing hair and makeup on, so she's not presenting this made-up persona of herself that she's meeting the world with? Does she not fit that, that stereotype? Oh, I guess physically she doesn't, you know, mm. like, but she does. Like, she looks great, yeah. you know, but, like, I guess, you know, just not not the ideal kind of lycra-wearing kind of woman, you know what I mean? That mm. kind of kind of persona. But she's quirky and creative and mm. and it's, it's almost like I'm looking at women in general, like pot- potential partners, I'm looking in general more holistically yeah. rather than... The surface. Yeah, rather than the persona. Yeah. You know? I, I, I bought hook, line and sinker, the persona, Yeah, you know, of what society thinks is, a, is the perfect woman. Same. You know, I think magazines. Yeah, know? I mean, we sold that. But then I, I don't know if this is true for all men, but I'd say maybe for some, if not the, the majority, um, I'm very visually... Um, like my visual sense is is very heightened, and so um, in terms of my attraction to women, it's based historically. It's been based on um, how beautiful their outer appearance is, mm. and the more beautiful they are in terms of you know, I guess society and cultural uh, concepts of beauty, that then the more attracted I am, am to them. And but that's purely you know the outer surface layers of the being. And so I've, in the past, I've tended to gravitate towards those kind of women and been attracted to beautiful appearing women. And, and as I've matured, I think my, um, my attraction has changed and I've, I've been, f- I guess, fortunate and unfortunate in that I've um, had partners who were quite beautiful looking, but then we didn't match or gel in a lot of other areas that are important way Mm. beyond just physical appearance. And I've learned, you know, as I've, you know, as I've matured that it's really, it's way much more than just the the physical beauty of the woman that, that makes someone um, a compatible life mate or life partner. Mm. And so, yeah, it's, um, what's, what's underneath the persona. Like, like we say, like, you know, ten percent of us is conscious, and ninety percent of us is unconscious. And so, maybe ninety percent of the value in a person is what's under the superficial layers. Mm. And that ten percent can look great, but is that where you're going to find what you're looking for? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's 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 so short lived that kind of stuff, and mm. and it's interesting because with this woman, it's taken on a new level now too, where it's um. <clears throat> We got really um, enmeshed quickly, and um, and and she started to push back, as in, uh, I'm not ready for this kind of stuff. And there's still heaps of love there, the same amount of love, but it's almost like, hold on, you know, <laughs> like she's been on her own for a lot of years, and and I've been a serial monogamist. Mm. Pretty much all my life, mm. pretty much, and it's made me look at that as another sort of form of shadow in my life. In some ways, I've sort of bought the fairy tale um, happily ever after romance, and I've been doing that since school days. Ah, so you have this template for relationship that you were conditioned to believe in, like the fairy tale, the white picket fence, happily ever after. And that's a template and then you, with each woman you meet, you stamp that on, on the top of them and then you're relating to that template rather than the person in front of you. Yeah. And then they, and this w- new partner of yours sounds like she's picked up on that and she goes, well, hang on, that template 
It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It's like a, it's like a yeah, a jacket that's a bit tight or uncomfortable. <laughs> a straight jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's got her own stuff to look at, but that, mm. but that's none of my business. Yeah, your business is that you're you've recognised that what was hiding from how you've been relating is that you're putting this fairy tale on top of the partnership, and that's a lens. Yeah. Through which you're viewing the partnership. So you're not really seeing the partnership, the relationship or your partner as they are, but as that lens has caused you to see them. Yeah. 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 It's kind of future future dooming or something. Yeah. <laughs> so what's that make available now that you've had this realization that this fairy tale thing of yours, now that you've identified it and you can give that up, right? You yeah. don't yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Complete words. Well, it's opened a whole new world. You know, in some ways, it's just like just be in the moment with the people you're with. Yeah, you know? like and see where that goes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been good. I'm not sure where shadow works in with that, but I think I think the shadow aspect. What I feel has happened is I bought that from my parents. Like my parents are still together, but there was some time, some serious times like yourself when they shouldn't have been. You know, like there was some serious violence and some serious stuff that happened yeah, in my okay. childhood. And, yeah. and you know, but I bought that hook, line and sinker from them and I don't know if I've created it in my shadow as in this kind of... What did you buy from them, um, line and sinker? What? I think stay together at all costs. Okay. You know, like, like yeah. once you're together, you're together, you know. like. So that shaped your view of partnership. I think so. Even yeah. if there's violence, even if you shouldn't be together, you stay together no matter what. Yeah, yeah. And how has that shaped your choices and decisions around relationship? <laughs> yeah, well, it's time to change. <laughs> <laughs> so you 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 bought it, but you you rebelled against it. Is that what you're saying? So so you did you leave relationships rather than stay in them? Yeah, I, I always always said, yeah, well, let's call it quits, you know. But I wasn't the one leaving all the time. You know? Sure. The last relationship, it was she, the, the other person that left, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I kind of, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like in my psyche there's this thing that I think things should be. And I've tried it all my life and it hasn't worked, but now I'm only just seeing that. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's, that's where the shadow comes in. So shadow, my definition of shadow is just something that's hidden from me. Yeah. Um, shadow's not what's dark or negative. It's just what's hiding in yeah. my unconscious that I haven't shone the light of awareness onto. And yeah. so you're getting aware now of, oh, there's this story I've had, this fantasy about what a relationship is or isn't. Yeah. And that's a lens through which I've been looking at relationship. And now that I've identified that lens, it's like taking off those glasses. I'm not going to look at relationships through those glasses anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to look at what's in front of me. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. just live day to day with what is rather than what could or should be. Yeah, and it's completely liberating. Right. Know? It is. Yeah. Completely. Oh, know? good. I'm glad you feel liberated. Yeah. Because yeah. it could still go into a happy picket fence with somebody, you know, if that's where it goes but yeah. the, i'm not i'm not wishing for that anymore mm. you're you not know? trying to create that yeah 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 i like that and you know it's interesting conversation too because um one of my um instagram posts that you know took off recently was around social media and i think there's this conversation that seems to be brewing up you know in social media because if I look at social media, there's a good chunk of it that is people presenting a very um, brave face and perfect persona that their life is all, you know, rainbows and butterflies. And there's a lot of pressure to maintain that. And, you know, people will take a photo of themselves and they can, you know, Photoshop it and make themselves look younger or their hair darker or slim their waist down a little bit and then they'll post that and that's their persona. And so they're putting their persona out there to, to test to test how the market <laughs> responds to that persona, I guess. Because I guess we're all, I don't know what we're all looking for, but we're looking for partnership or, you know, we're looking for... Connection. Engagement and connection, yeah. So 
social media is um, a medium through which we can, you know, um, create a, a, an even stronger persona. And yeah, I wonder where that where that's all going. Mm. And I'm what I'm what I like is that there's also it's also a platform where people can just be real and vulnerable as well and maybe show what's underneath that glossy exterior and that's the stuff that i find relatable yeah and i guess i've learned that you know that the surface of things can be beautiful and and beautiful beauty is a wonderful thing like you know who doesn't like beauty it's not like we need less beauty in the world but there's beauty in all in there's other types of beauty Mm. the beauty in the connection between people that aren't necessarily trying to falsify who they really are, their authentic self. Yeah. So I guess for me, the shadow conversation is that if I'm just presenting this pretty persona of myself all the time, that's not fully authentic. And that if I present it with what's underneath that as well, then that's a more authentic version of myself. And I find that liberating. Talking back to that workshop, that's exactly what I judged about that woman in that workshop. Right? That's that, that kind of fake persona. Let's call it what it is, you know, yes. like, or how I judged it. Yes, fake persona, you know. Yeah, I definitely think there's room for a thing called realogram, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no filters. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder how popular that would be. <laughs> Might not be your best business idea you've come up with, David, but, but I get where you're going with it. Yeah, like authenticogram, like just who, yeah, who well, are you really? And back to when I was a makeup artist, that was my thing. I, I was working in the eighties and nineties, and oh, nineties, and um, yeah, eighties, nineties, and and my whole thing was natural makeup, and natural makeup wasn't a thing back then. It was like, oh wow, you're not going to put anything on that girl's face, and I'm like, she's kind of beautiful anyway, you know. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my job's done. <laughs> I mean, you enhance here and there a little yes. bit of lip gloss or something, but like it was really, it was really avant garde back then, right? Like, like they hadn't seen it. You were minimalist, yeah, completely. Yeah, you, you weren't going to ruin her beauty by no. by putting on some false mask or persona, yeah. And it's interesting because you know we need a persona. Like you, you, it's hard to, yeah. Well, some women were really confronted by that. Yeah. I remember I did a shoot with Paloma Picasso. Remember her with the red lips, yeah. Picasso's daughter, mm. and. Her signature was red lips, and I was like, I'm not going to do that, you know. <laughs> and she was cool on the day, but the pictures never got published. <laughs> uh, you got a bit of a rebel streak, or, or at least, um, yeah, maybe you were a visionary ahead of your time. Oh, who knows? Yeah. Maybe I was just stubborn. And so the judgment in you, so with that woman in the workshop, and I might, you know, um, if it's okay with you, add on to this podcast a little piece of that video from sure, that workshop yeah, yeah, yeah you'd be fine. okay with that because yeah, yeah. it'll help give people some reference to what we're talking about and so so you, you in in the workshop you were told to look around the room for the f- person you find the most repulsive and then go stand next to them and put your hand on the on their shoulder and then you've walked over to her and she's walked over to you and you've both found each other the most repulsive person in the room. It's a great exercise. Which made us laugh. You know, like yeah. We were the only ones in the room that did that, right? Yeah, right. Everyone. So I, I triggered something in her. Obviously. I remember one guy had like 17 hands on his yeah. shoulder. <laughs> Popular guy. <laughs> um, so, so the idea was to, you know, it's, a, it's an exercise around looking at our judgments of others, yeah? yeah? And so then you came to the front of the room and you and her did an exercise to look at what, what was your judgment. And you, you were judging that she had a, like a, you know, she was a well-dressed, well-groomed, mm. um, beautiful posture. Mm. And, and so you would, what's, can you talk through um, what was the repulsion and what was the judgment and then what happened w- when you spoke with her? Yeah, well judgment was that it was just like me judging someone that might spend too long in front of the mirror and that's totally my judgment i don't know if she does or doesn't so I c- mm. i'm not putting her under a bus or i hope i'm not mm. you know um but what it triggered in me and you'll see it in that video was i you know i remember my father saying to me i was looking at myself in the mirror i think it might have been then or or but I remember him saying, geez, you love yourself, don't you? You know, it was that kind of toxic masculinity that I 
grew up with, you know, as a teenager. And that kind of crushed me, you know, like that probably installed that judgment in me, you know, from that moment on. So the judgment is that if she's that well-groomed and that well-dressed, she must be spending a lot of time in front of the mirror and, gee, she loves herself and that's to be frowned upon because that's the message you got from your dad. Yeah. So, so if you're walking around taking a lot of care in your appearance, you must love yourself. But, but in a negative sense, not... That, yeah, yeah. yeah, as in a vain sense. And so did that... Did that um, impact you or impede your ability to love yourself opposite oh impede sorry yeah, impaired. impaired yeah yeah impaired completely i mean that's why i was a heroin addict i think you know like right. that's part of it right like so the message from your dad was don't love yourself yeah yeah i mean you can't do much more of an act than put a needle in your arm than you know yeah as in to show how, how you feel about yourself yeah. self-loathing yeah and so that's, I guess, an aspect of shadow too, is like self-loathing, unless you're conscious that you're self-loathing, which some people are. Um, otherwise, it might be just, no, I'm just an addict. I, I, I don't hate myself, I'm just an addict. Mm. Oh, most addicts who overdose, I think it's suicide. Yeah, you know, like, yes. Yeah, and, um, and, you know, it's no fluke that I looked at self-help so much and now I have a spiritual practice you know that's I've had to find the love for myself to to live actually yeah and you found that yeah well done <laughs> where was it hiding <laughs> in your shadow <laughs> uh, um the Dalai Lama um I looked this up because I, I thought it might have just been a wives tale or a myth but uh, he visited Australia I forget the dates or what the year that it was and when he was back in India, somebody was interviewing him and asked him a question about Australia and he commented that um, until he'd come to Australia, he didn't know that there was such a thing as self-loathing, but he saw it here mm. in the people. Mm. And he was saying, oh, I, I didn't know there was such a thing, but in Australia I saw it and I felt it. And so that I, I found that very fascinating mm. concept that there must be something here in the people, something deep in our psyche where we find it difficult to love and, and accept ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the treatment of Indigenous and, you know... Our, our, our criminal uh, uh, yeah. you know, background, like we were founded... Run core, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the first, you know, people that lived here were either criminals or guards, so we come from that whole convict mentality. Mm. And then there were some you know, mistreatment of the Indigenous First Nation people, so maybe that's on our conscience. Mm. And so, yeah, maybe there is this capacity and propensity for us here to to loathe ourselves. And um, yeah, it's an, another way in which this is a shadow conversation is that through I've done about a decade of deep shadow work now, and I don't regret any of it, and it hasn't all been easy or comfortable. But I can actually say now for the first time in my life, and I've been able to say this for a few years now, is that I love myself, mm, mm. I respect myself, and I trust myself. But I couldn't say any of that until I had uncovered these hidden parts of self that I was rejecting and disowning and not okay with and not comfortable with. It sounds like there's a bit of that going on, a lot of that going on in you Definitely. as well, that you're now accepting all these parts of yourself. You're not shaming yourself or judging yourself about your heroin addiction or any of that stuff. You're like, no, that was just what I was doing at the time. Yeah, yeah. I think it's – I think I'm at the uncovering part, you know, uh, and and accepting for mm. sure. Um, I can say I love myself, but I probably don't say it with as much vigour as you do, you know what I mean? Because I haven't done as much shadow work. Yeah, you've done more than a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I feel worthy to be here these days, which is a big thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're not about to go out and no. stick a rope on a tree. And no, and, and 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 I'm capable of forgiveness too. I don't hold grudges for, for my father, who's still alive, you know. I don't hold a grudge there. Yeah. Or anyone that mistreats me, I really don't, you know. Yeah, well, it says more about where they're at yeah. and um, what they're going through. And, I, I, you know, my father was violent too and I've forgiven my father and I think we did it for the same reason is because that we didn't want to hold those stones in, in our heart, you know, like 
holding resentment towards someone hurts you more than the other person. Yeah, and you're going to repeat the same behaviour, you know, at some point. Yeah. To somebody else. If you don't let go of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's shadow in action, right? Like, or something. I don't know. Yeah, I th- yeah. Well, until you can forgive them, you're you're holding on to judgment and resentment, and and that judgment and resentment, if you looked at it for what it really is, is unintegrated aspects of yourself that you, because whatever you whatever you find repulsive or reject in another, is an aspect of yourself that you haven't owned and accepted. Mm. Is that that you're you're also capable of those same characteristics and yeah. and that's you know, that's liberating it's been liberating for me to yeah. to be able to um accept all of myself yeah otherwise you're hijacked by those emotions right you know yeah you see people our age that are angry old men you know mm. angry middle-aged men <laughs> Six, 60s and you we're not going to get away with that because this is being filmed <laughs> if it was audio only they might believe that um so it's been a delightful conversation. I, I want to just take it somewhere else if if we can, and um, and we'll just see see where we go with this. I don't know where it's going, but we we have a lot of similarities in our temperament, character, uh, interests. Um, one of them is I think we both have this fascination with death or dying, mm. and um, I, I certainly picked that up as a nurse. And when I when I retired as a nurse about four or five years ago, I thought, is there anything else in nursing that I still want to do before I retire? And the only thing I thought of was palliative care, to be that person that's the midwife at the other end of life and being the ferryman to assist that person in that, that transition. And um, But I chose not to, And but it is something that I would have, if I was going to stay in nursing, I would have gone there. And, and you... You work or volunteer at um, uh, Wedgetail, which is uh, li- like a hospice palliative care facility, uh, a small, is it four bed? Yeah, and um, for people that are at that point in their life. And, and so for you to work there, that tells me something about you in terms of um, your proclivities or interests. And so what is it that has you show up? And, and uh, do you get paid? So you volunteer, so you give your time uh, at, at this um, palliative care to be with people in their, in their last days. What's that about for you? Uh, I, I love it. It's, I was, I've been doing it for a year now and, um, and there's never a day where I don't want to go there. You know? I kind of wish I got paid to go there because I'd do it five days a week. You know, like, like that's... That's what I would wish, but I don't wish to be paid for the volunteering. And um, the volunteering came about like with my last partner. We we did wishes every New Year's, and and mine just came out of the blue. I said I want to start volunteering, and how it started for me was I um, I contacted. No, I'll tell you how it really started for me. It started twenty years ago when my best friend was dying of cancer. He was dying of esophageal cancer. He was 41 years old. He was diagnosed and he was dead within six months. And I was his best mate and I was on the inner circle of caring for him. Like I didn't do wash him or anything like that, but I was just the inner circle. If you've been around people dying, you know what that's like. Yep. And, um, and I realised I'm good at it, you know. It doesn't freak me out at all, you know. And he was my best mate and it, it was sad, but... Yep. I get energised around people who are dying in mm. some weird way. Mm. It's, it's just like, okay, what needs to be done? I mean, you know what it's like in nursing. I've trained as an assistant in nursing since. And and when you're nursing, you're just looking around for what's the next thing that's needed. Yes. You know? Yeah, exactly. And um, <clears throat> and what I found with Chris dying, that was that. And, and he died and stuff. And I've since had about five close friends die, all from cancer and various things and um and i've been there for them all of them and um and yeah i've just got this skill of holding space in that arena and um and so back to that new year's eve wish and i said i want to volunteer 
and how it started was I was living in Darlinghurst in Sydney at that time and it's right near St Vincent's Hospital and I said, I'm going to go to the hospital and volunteer to cut hair of cancer patients, you know. And so I met with the head of volunteers, this wonderful woman, and she loved my ideas because, you know, people come in for chemo and they're going to lose all their hair and they might as well have a funky haircut before <laughs> all their hair goes, you know. And... Um, and Illness and death and none of that freaks me out. Mm. I'm good at around that stuff. Yeah. And, and she loved my idea. But the red tape, I, I waited a year trying to get through the red tape of just going into the, this is pre-COVID, going into the hospital to just do a service of volunteering and they fucking wouldn't let me, you know. Like the red tape would not let me. Mm. And it just drove me nuts. You know? so, okay. So then I started cutting hair for the homeless and started doing that at local centres, did a bit of that. And that was fine, but it wasn't the same thing to yeah. me, you know, like homelessness is a different kind of kettle of fish. It is. And um, I still enjoyed it and they liked it. Um, but then, then you know, I moved up here nearly three years ago and there's a space called Wedgetail Retreat, which is a hospice with four beds. And... Um, Started by this wonderful woman who is an AIN like me. She just started tweed palliative care, visiting people's houses and bringing equipment to people's houses to yep. um, help them die. Excuse me. And um, she's just said one day, "We need a we need a house. <laughs> we need somewhere for people to come." And she's a real go getter, and she made it happen, you know. And now there is Wedgetail, and when I moved up here, I saw that there was training for it because it's quite intense training you have to do mm. to, to hold that space. And it's a 10-week course. Um, I think one or two days a week for 10, ten weeks. It might be one. Uh, but, you know, basically you're going through grief training. They're sort of mm. trying to find out if you're going to be t totally affected by grief or you're going to be good with it. You know, and everyone has a different journey with grief. Yeah. You know? And I was there thinking, oh, I'm going to be, you know, and now I have a meditation practice. I have for like 10 years now and I meditate every day and I thought, you know, m in my mind I'm going, I'm going to be that guy, the gatekeeper there, you know, I'm going to help people pass on and, you know, all that kind of bullshit. And, um, <laughs> 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 and it's so not like that, you know, it's so not like that, like, <clears throat> I now volunteer either once a week or once a fortnight and when I get there, you do whatever has to be done. If, if somebody needs washing or something, you help the nurse do that or whatever. But the majority of my work is just because is just talking with family, mm. you know, or actually better, listening to family. Yeah. No talking, <laughs> you know. It's holding space for them because grief comes out sideways for every different person. Yeah. You know? And, yeah, there might be times where you have to help the actual person who is passing on, but the rest of the time it's just dealing with what's in the room, you know, like, and families go through all kinds of stuff when someone's dying and they can be young people that are dying or old people that are dying and everything in between. And what I've found is it's just just being there and listening, you know, and doing what needs to be done, basically. And I really feel energised every time I go there. And, you know, and like I said, I never I never go, oh, I've got to volunteer today. Mm, <laughs> yeah, right. It's like kind of one of the best things I've done in my life. Oh, that's you know? awesome <laughs> to hear that. And it sounds like you're there. I would have just assumed, you know, and incorrectly it seems that, that you – the main focus would be the person dying and what I'm hearing you say is that really it's the family that probably need you more and for them to be able to share what their experience is because, I mean, the person dying, I don't know what happens after we die but I imagine it's a release and that, you know, the spirit goes back to where spirits come from and that I imagine the spirit will be fine but it's the family that are going to be grieving and left behind and dealing with the, the hurt or the loss or the grief. And um, so, yeah, maybe the focus is as much the family as it is the, the person who's transitioning. Yeah, more so. And 
And if you really have empathy for that person lying in the bed, that's what they would want, you know? They want their family to be held, mm. you know? Mm. I mean, they're looked after by... The only person, people that are paid at Wedgetail are the nurses, the registered nurses. Yes. Everyone else is a volunteer. Yeah. And by the time they get to palliative care, they might have a few days. Some people, you know, live for weeks, but some people, most don't. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of like their wishes, you know? The dying person's wishes is for their family to be held in a nice space, you know? Um, what is the... What's the reason that the person would come to Wedgetail rather than die at home? Like, what are the, some of the reasons people give for coming to the facility? Well, there's no judgment there whatsoever. You know, you could be a homeless person and end up at Wedgetail, you know. You just have to be signed off as palliative okay. from a doctor. Yep. So you might be living in a one-bedroom flat with no family and Wedgetail is a house in a rainforest kind of situation ah, on a hill. Gotcha. It's like a beautiful environment with a dog there's no hospital lights mm. there's no knocking on the door you just sort of mm. hello <laughs> how you doing <laughs> it's, it's like a um a comfortable departure lounge yeah yeah pretty much most people that some people that come there they hang on because it's so beautiful oh wow but other people that come there they just let go and just go oh wow i made it mm. you know yeah, we uh we um you know Luke. Yeah. Have you seen his property? No, I've heard about yeah, it. Yeah, he's got a beautiful property up up in the valley there. I went and had a look at it the other day. It's majestic. Mm. And it's one of the th- one of his plans, one of his visions he has for his property is that um he's going to build several cabins there, but one or more of them will be used for people who are looking to exit. Yeah, cool. And when I looked at that property, I'm like yeah, I wouldn't mind checking out here. <laughs> yeah. It's just stunning. Like, it's just in, beautiful in the forest and the mountains and, you know, beautiful trees everywhere and sunshine and, you know, creek. And it's just like, oh, you know, you, you already feel like you're in heaven. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where we come from, right? Right. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> where do we come from and where are we going when we leave? Um, okay, so, yeah, I think we've covered enough ground and um, I really appreciate yeah, you, you're sharing your stories and um, thank you for coming on and I'll, I'm, I feel inspired to have you on again and, and um, yeah, maybe follow up this conversation around death and dying because it is a bit of a taboo subject. It's a subject most people don't talk about. Um, I noticed that I never thought about death until I was about 58 and I had a bit of a scare and had some lumps show up and I thought I had lymphoma and I, I thought my day was up. And then that got me thinking about death and I haven't stopped thinking about death ever since. Mm. But prior to 58, it never crossed my mind. Even though I worked as a nurse for 30 years, I never thought about my own death. But mm. now my own death is kind of on my mind. I think maybe something that happens around 60 yeah, where maybe the majority of your life is behind you. yeah, And then, you know, um, and so maybe it's the facing, I think that's the second Saturn return. Yeah. Is that, yeah, you realise, okay, no, it's not going to be forever and that, you know, how do I how do I want the rest of my life to go in preparation for that that phase? And so that's that's that'd be something I would like to explore. And I've got some ideas I'd like to mm. to share and and hear your ideas on that. Yeah, so yeah, so we're we're going to do a little meditation now. We're gonna and we'll sign off here and we'll go and have a little meditation together. Cool. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Pete Isaiah is an Australian trauma therapist and integration coach. You can find him at isaiahcoaching.com and connect with him on Instagram at isaiahcoaching. This podcast was produced by Quinika Davis, edited by Beck Isaiah and Luca Young, and the score was produced by Joshua Richards.